Welcome to the inaugural episode of Teachers in White Coats, a podcast series produced by the educational technology team at Stanford Medicine, where we sit down with doctors, faculty, and other healthcare professionals to hear their stories on the innovative ways they've used education to help improve health outcomes across the globe. I'm your host, Erfan Majadam, Manager of Academic Tech and Innovation at Stanford Medicine. Our guest today is my colleague and friend, Dr. Maya Adam. Maya's roles include faculty at Stanford Medicine, Director of Health Education Outreach at Stanford's Center for Health Education, and the faculty lead for the Digital Medic Initiative in South Africa. She's also one of the most impressive educators I know. Welcome, Maya. Thank you for having me. Maya, I want to jump right in with a tough and somewhat controversial question. You've taught health and medicine courses here at Stanford. You have public content available on multiple platforms online, and you've worked on educational initiatives in low- and middle-income countries. So based on your experiences, do you believe that education alone can have a serious impact on improving health outcomes across the globe? That's such a great question, Erfan. And I would say that education is definitely part of the solution, but I don't think that education in and of itself without it being delivered in the context of some kind of a relationship. I don't think education by itself is the full answer to the story. I think we need to find ways, creative ways, especially when we're delivering education through digital means, we need to find ways to connect authentically with our learners whether it's by including their stories and their experiences in the teaching or by establishing some kind of connection through human-centered design, through other creative ways. I think without some sort of a connection, it's difficult to teach anyone anything. And there's a great TED Talk by Rita Pearson where she says people don't learn from people they don't like. And so establishing that relationship, even if it's a virtual one, is key to getting any kind of information across to somebody in a way that will actually have an impact on their health. And so right now, we're both sitting in Stanford University, uh, what some people may call the ivory tower. How do we build those relationships and connections from here? So I think going to other parts of the world, if that's possible, and spending time there, not just jetting in and jetting out, but actually embedding yourself, if that's possible, within the community that you wish to serve, I think that's a key to really understanding their needs, understanding what methods of communication are going to be most effective, and really getting a sense for the, the things that we can learn from low- and middle-income communities and the way in which they solve their own problems. So a majority of the content that you produce is focused around nutrition. Why is that your focus area? For me, nutrition is at the heart of everything. You know, from the minute we're born, food sustains us. It connects us to the people we love. It can be something that supports our health throughout our lifetime, or it can be something that really hurts us throughout our lifetime. And right now, 
our globe is in crisis. You know, there are people who focus on climate change because that's a big crisis of our time. I think the food environment and the shift towards a predominantly Western way of eating is one of the other great crises of our time. So other physicians or even educators who are listening to this right now, what can they do to pr uh, promote better nutrition for either their patients or for people in their communities? Well, one of the reasons that we have developed quite a few online resources around nutrition is because we recognize that physicians often don't have the time to spend the, the amount of time that is necessary to really sustainably help their patients change behaviors. That takes an enormous amount of time and energy. And so if we can use technology to support that by establishing those important relationships through really engaging video content that shows people how they can really apply a stepwise approach to celebrating the foods that are going to love them back for a lifetime. I think that's how we can support physicians in their efforts to do that as well. Let's switch gears a bit because I think you have a fascinating life story. You did not take the traditional path to med school. Uh, in fact, before college, you had a whole other career. Can you tell us what you were doing? Um, before I attended Stanford as an undergraduate, I spent 10 years on a stage as a ballet dancer with one of the state ballet companies in Germany. So I left my home in Canada at the age of 17, and then I returned as a 27-year-old freshman to Stanford. And what was your motivation for going back to school? I imagine it wasn't an easy decision. It was really scary, um, and I actually thought somebody had made a terrible mistake in the admissions office, and I thought maybe I should just keep my mouth shut for four years and nobody would notice. <laughs> but I think for me, I've always loved challenges, and I've always loved the ability to connect with people. And the arts and performance are a really powerful way to connect with people and engage them, and medicine is another really powerful way of doing that. And both professional ballet and medicine are really, really tough and they require a lot of discipline. And somehow I think that has always appealed to me. And that's why those two careers ended up being on my playlist. And do you use some of the creativity you learned from your previous career in what you're doing now? And if so, how? Definitely, yes. I, I find myself thinking when I'm coming up with a storyboard or a script for one of our teaching videos, I can sometimes picture it as if it's on a stage and how one character will relate to another and where the opportunities are for us to harness the power of emotion in the learner, make them laugh or make them cry or make them feel like they want to get to know a character better. Those are some of the most powerful ways that we have to communicate information in a way that will stick. I think if our listeners check out some of your videos online, they'll definitely see examples of that. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, you're the Director of Health Education Outreach at Stanford. And as a part of your role, you opened up an office in South Africa to help tackle health challenges in that part of the world. What's your connection to South Africa? Well, my mother is originally Indian South African. She grew up in Durban, and she met my father in the 60s. He was a grad student from Germany. 
who was spending some time in South Africa, and they met and fell in love. But during those days, it was actually illegal for them even to be in a car together or on a beach together because of the um, what they called the Immorality Act, which basically prevented any interracial, intimate relations of any kind. And so my parents had kind of a secret love affair, and then they were found out, and my father's visa was revoked, and he was given 48 hours to leave the country. So he then had to convince my mother's parents to accept him as their future son-in-law and allow their daughter to leave with him. And they ended up moving to Canada and then returning later when they had their Canadian citizenship. But South Africa has always been part of my life because my parents are both political scientists. And after they received their Canadian citizen status, they would move back and forth. So we grew up in between Cape Town and Vancouver. And the the history of South Africa, the story of how South Africa has always managed to kind of defy the odds and pull back from what looks like the brink of disaster. There's something very beautiful and powerful about the story of that country that keeps drawing me back again and again. I know right now uh, you have, you've opened up the Digital Meta Initiative office in South Africa. What type of work is that office doing and how are you involved? So I set up Digital Medic South Africa in 2017-18 when I spent a year in Cape Town with my family, with our three children. And that team, a phenomenal team of content producers and managers and researchers work together with us on this side to create really engaging story-based health education content that's developed together with the communities that the content aims to serve. And so the last few years, you've been working with Digital Medic in low and middle income countries, but you also have courses online. You have five courses on Coursera right now. One of them has over 340,000 learners. I imagine a majority of those learners are in uh, high income countries like the U.S. What's the difference between educating populations in high income countries versus low and middle income countries? It's so interesting that you ask that because, you know, I've recently been thinking about how similar those two things are in some ways because it all starts with establishing that kind of connection between the instructor and the learner. And then from there, it's a question of stylistic choices that are made. And surprisingly, I just found out that the Coursera learners, only about half of them are in the global north, and the other half of them actually, in my courses, tend to be in countries in the global south. Now, they are often much more tech savvy and they often have um, secondary degrees. So they're a much more, let's say, educated or they've had more access to education throughout their lifetimes. But I think, I think everybody wants to understand. And I think often the mistake teachers make is that they try and prove why they're in the teaching position by showing what they know instead of delivering what the learner needs. So I think for whether it's an, a highly resourced learner in the global north or an under-resourced learner in the global south, I think knowing what that person needs and communicating in a way that's simple and that is easy and accessible for anyone to understand, that should be our greatest priority as teachers. 
I think that's great advice for health educators out there. Another controversial topic, vaccines and immunizations. I've had a chance to travel the world, and in so many places I've been to, there's a lot of miseducation around this topic, uh, even places uh, like the U.S., uh, up to a point where we're seeing violence in some countries. Why is there so much miseducation around this, and what can we as educators and health professionals do about it? Yeah. I mean, the, the question of education around vaccines and immunizations, it's really it's a clear example of the power of anecdotal health advice. There is so much content out there that is anecdotal, where people say, you know, I, my child had their immunization and then they developed autism or they had this side effect. And it's difficult for people to distinguish that from evidence-based health information. So that is part of the problem, but it also illustrates the power of a story, right? So if in our health education, if we can present our advice through stories of how immunization has saved so many lives, it's really, it can be something that we turn into our favor. It's definitely a big problem, a huge problem around the world. Um, I think it all started, as far as I understand, with the, the Wakefield scandal um, around the MMR vaccine um, Wakefield was an English physician who published false data suggesting that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and um, autism. And that led to a whole bunch of people coming out and saying, my child also developed their symptoms after the MMR vaccine. But actually, that's just a function of the fact that a lot of social and language skills develop at around one year of age. And that's when the MMR vaccine is first given. So I think helping people to sift through the real evidence-based information that's out there and the anecdotal stuff is part of our job as health educators. And at the same time, it's our duty to make our content more engaging and stop being so boring because people <laughs> then will default to the stuff that's easy to understand, even if it's not true. Thank you. I always love hearing about your work, Maya. So how can our listeners get involved in the types of work that you do, either to educate themselves or help educate their communities? Well, all of our content that we create is online. It's open access. The content that we create for predominantly low and middle income countries is there to be used in programs that reach communities at the last mile of health. So if people are working with under-resourced communities and they want to use our content or adapt our content, we would love to support that and work with them on, on achieving that. Um, our other content, you know, is available on Coursera and again, openly available. Um, and then just by reaching out, reach out to us. We'd love to chat and hear more about your work and about how we might be able to collaborate. Maya, it has been a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for being my first guest. A great pleasure and thank you for all the great work you're doing as well, Airfun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teachers in White Coats. If you're enjoying our show, please like, rate, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. In our next episode, we'll have Dr. Shakti Srivastava discussing clinical anatomy and his Scalpel 2.0 initiative. My name is Erfan Majadam. See you next time.